0: Listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. Today we get to hear from Glenn Packiam uh, once again, and he's a really cool guy. He's the Sunday night uh, pastor, as many of you may know. If you're an old school Miller, he used to be the Mill worship uh, pastor, and so he's a really big deal. And today's lesson, he's going to talk about basically the entire Bible. Doesn't that sound sweet? And so I remember hearing this lesson um, about a year ago, and it's it's some of his uh, what he's going to say today came from a book called The Last Word, right, by N. T. Wright. And I remember after Glenn taught this lesson, I went out and got that book and read it, and it's just an amazing big picture idea. what the Bible is. It's the Bible in six acts. And so if you have notes, um, the thing we give you as you you, um, enter into the Mill Sunday School, basically those six points are listed there in case you get lost. But um, without any further ado, everybody, Glenn Pacquiam.
1: Thank you, Dr. Joe Kirkendall. Uh, You know, you guys have a real treat here in Joe leading the Sunday School. I, we, he and I were just chatting before we started this morning about some of the topics he's covered in Mill Sunday School over the last couple of years and I don't know if you, you realize this but Joe is a real rare guy because he's, you know, he got his MDiv at Fuller, which is an incredible seminar, and, and then he went on and got his doctorate And uh, and and yet he's this young cool guy who knows how to explain things to, you know, the average folks like us. So, anyway, just you, you, it's a, it's a, Joe's did a great job with this, and it's a privilege for me to jump in here and do a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, before we get uh, too far into the outline, I just want to mention this because Joe highlighted this. If you're looking for some additional reading, and some of you might be, I just want to list uh, three books. They're very different, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about them um, and, and why the, uh, how they could benefit you as you think about this subject. The first book is a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's by Gordon Fee. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's actually by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, I think, is the other co-author's name. That is a very good book uh, to just kind of take section by section of the scripture and say, look, when you're reading uh, the letters of Paul, you want to approach it this way when you're reading, you know. So some of the stuff that we'll get into later this morning about actual Bible study, a lot of that is taken from from Fee and Stewart's book. It's kind of a classic um, a book on, on on how to study the Bible here. Let me help you out here. And then and then another book that you could read is the one that Joe mentioned. It's called The Last Word by N. T. Wright. Now it's a thin book, but it is a very dense book. Uh, not, not, an, uh, not the easiest um read, but 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 it tackles some of the philosophical um presuppositions we bring to the Bible. What do we mean by authority? What do we mean by uh, God's spoken word and, and things like that? So it, it's very good, uh, but it is very dense, uh, though it's thin. The third book is, is a book called Eat This Book <laughs> by Eugene Peterson. And uh, you really can't eat it. Uh, he's using the metaphor here of consuming the word of God, of course. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, that's a, it, it's a very good read. And um, uh, Eugene, he, okay, so if How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is full of like practical, you know, concrete tips and, and strategies, uh, and, and, and uh, the last word by N.T. Wright is a little more philosophical, Eat This Book by Eugene is a little more uh, artistic. You know, it's a little more of this, uh, let's use some imaginative, prayerful imagination is kind of Eugene's phrase uh, as we think about the Scripture. So they're all helpful uh, in different ways, and I am pulling from from bits from three of those books. But the point, of course, this week and last week, um, is to focus on this book, the Bible. Uh, the reason we're talking about this is because we realize that there's so much about this book that we don't know, and there's so much about this book that we find intimidating, if we're honest. And we say, you know what, I'm okay reading the Gospel of John, and I'm okay reading Acts, and I'm okay reading... Uh, you know Galatians or Colossians but uh, or James, you know, but when I get into some of these other st- I, I just don 't know what to what how to make sense uh, of of Leviticus or of Ezekiel or of Jeremiah or uh, maybe even Romans you know and and a lot of what we 're talking about, and so if you missed last week you 'll want to get the podcast at the mill sunday school's uh, podcast uh, uh, channel on I- iTunes. Uh, because last week we talked about reading approaches and how do we approach this. And so we decided that for this month we're going to talk about what it means to look at the Bible as a gigantic story. As a story um, of God's salvation saving work. And so today, okay this is all last week's stuff so I'm going to scroll through the notes here. And get to, um, get to the, the part where we left off last week. And we'll say a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll kind of dive into that. All right, come on. Give. I was going to, you know, scroll there right away, but just thought I needed to have the title page up there 1st <laughs> Almost there. Almost there. There we are. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. That you're not a God that. Uh, uh, just created the heavens and the earth and then stayed distant but you 're a God that from the beginning uh, has been revealing yourself that you that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always present and always Uh, surrounding us, and thank you that that for all of us that are here, uh, we we get to be in your family because of Jesus, and we belong to you. We're we're not reading uh, your Word as just a distant sort of person. Uh, We're sons and daughters reading what our Father has spoken to us. We thank you for the gift of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, the full revelation of God. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that all of us have the Spirit of God with us, living in us, Uh, opening our hearts and our minds. And so uh, we find ourselves never alone as we come to your your word. And so even as we talk about it today, would you illuminate our hearts and our our minds and make it come alive to us? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The story of the Bible in six acts, if you remember this uh, last week, we we ended by just listing all six of them. Uh, This morning we're going to take a little bit of time and walk through it. And kind of the goal here is not to give you... Every detail of background for every single book of the Bible, or, nor is it to give you, you know, specific dates. Like, okay, you know, Psalms were maybe written in this. You know, actually, we don't know much about when the Psalms were written. But so that's a bad example. But, but, but the the goal for this morning is not to say, okay, which books are we going? This is the exact time period, or this is the date. You know, the goal is to give you a, a big arc, a, a meta narrative, and to kind of say, here's the framework. Where does this fit in? I don't know how your closet looks. Uh, my, my closet, I tend to enjoy my closet being organized in a particular way from long sleeve to short sleeve from solids uh, solid uh, solids to stripes and then darks to light I know it 's um Really weird, but I like it that way, and I know where everything fits. And so, if I get a shirt back from the cleaners, it's like, let's say, this is a long sleeve over here, you know? and I know where to get something. Well, we kind of need that when you you hear maybe the story of Ruth or the story of Esther or the story of Daniel. You think, well, where does this fit, uh, even in the narrative? Um, and so, we're going to walk through that just a little bit. Act one: the way the Bible's story begins, the way the storytellers uh, have us begin, is in the beginning. And uh, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And Genesis, of course, Genesis one and two, is the story of creation. It's very important when you're when, when we approach this story to try to take a guess or try to, to responsibly um, say why was the story? What was the storyteller trying to accomplish here? Maybe even what question? were they trying to answer? Because it's, very, it's sometimes you and I can approach a story trying to answer questions that the story was not trying to answer. Does that make sense? Uh, let's say you walked in on a couple of friends talking and someone's talking about um, uh, you, you know, did you hear about what happened yesterday and all this stuff, and you're thinking it was some breaking news event, and they're talking about their experience going to the U.S. Women's Open down at the Broadmoor. Or whatever. If you don't know what the storyteller is trying to convey, uh, you may think that there was something, you, you may come to it with a different, uh, different, uh, different lens. Uh, a couple years ago, I was up at a conference in Toronto, and I was speaking at this conference, and it was a very bizarre kind of conference because they had like, people from the um, kind of pop Christian world, you know, like me, and then they had like these scholars that were there, like Dr. Craig Evans and others, you know, these Dead Sea Scrolls scholars. And the reason they thought, wouldn't it be a great idea... Uh, because the, the University of Toronto—it or, or was no—the the the Royal Ontario Museum was doing this display exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they thought, let's bring in some scholars of the scrolls, and then let's bring in some worship bands, and then let's bring in some, some like speakers, and get them all together at the same conference. It was a really bizarre idea, uh, but very cool, and, and a cool experience for me because I, I got to have some conversations with these people, and. Um, I was talking to one of them about the Genesis stories and, and saying to them, okay, what do you think uh, is, is the point here? And is it disturbing at all that, that creation and flood, there's some parallels here in Babylonian epics and Gilgamesh and all this. Is that, is that troubling uh, to you in any way? And they said, no, not at all. Uh, in fact, for the ancients, no one would have told the story of, of, of creation, the creation of the world to answer the question, did God or did a God create this? That was a given. in the To the ancients, they would have said, of course, a god, some cosmic deity did all this. Uh, in fact, if you read even just a quick reading of um, uh, sort of ancient creation myths or how the world came to be. You, you'll read some bizarre stories. You'll read stories of gods fighting and ripping out one another's guts and flinging, flinging them in space and saying, there's the moon. And there's, you know. Or you'll read it of some sort of cosmic uh, erotic story where uh, the planets are the children of the gods or whatever it may be. The story, the way the Genesis storyteller tells it, is unique in this way. It's not unique because it's saying that God made the heavens and the earth. We know that the heavens and the earth, we know, was the result of some kind of God. What makes the story unique is the question, the the way it answers the question, and what was this God like? And why did He create When you think of the story of the Bible beginning with Act 1, creation, the point to notice is not so much, oh, it was God. You see, it's not evolution. It's God. Yeah, that's true. But the point that we're really meant to see is that our God made everything on purpose. And He made it out of some sort of love, a self-giving sort of love as, as this extension of, yeah, let's make it. Let's call it good. Let's make it to reflect our image. We're meant to see That the beginning of everything is started on purpose by a loving God who takes delight in this. Now, if you get Act 1 wrong, you kind of get the whole rest of the story wrong because you can think of, if you think of creation as just, well, it's just kind of stuff, it's just in the way, and material stuff doesn't matter anyway. Flying in the face of a Greek philosophy that, that, that might have said that material things don't matter is this Jewish story that says, Actually, matter matters. Everything that is material, God made it and God called it good. And the story begins this way. But we know that the story, of course, Act Two of the story is fall. It doesn't stay this way. Uh, there, there's something that has infected God's world. We're there, and there's parts of it we're not told. We're, we're not told. Uh, why or how this, this serpent, creature, figure, thing that represents evil, how does that thing get inside the garden? How, why is that in God's world? But the pivotal moment of the story of the fall that we are meant to pay attention to is how it's humans, people who are made in God's image, who eventually say no thanks to God. Now think about this. There's several. There's several things we notice right away about the story. One, a good God made the world and He called it good. Yeah, okay. We see that, but it's also true that that God then chooses human beings, Adam and Eve, to be His image bearers, to be people that look like Him, that resemble Him, and and in Genesis one twenty six to twenty seven it says this. It says, "Let us make uh, mankind in our image and let them rule, let them reign." Over all these other uh, parts of the world. Now, I think in our minds we need to rethink what what this means. Because if you hear the word rule or reign, we tend to think of oh oh oh, oh you know like someone cracking the whip. Or look, that's why I can go you know uh, shoot an animal. That's why I can do this or that because I'm I've got I'm supposed to reign. Well, I, I, I suggest to you that when God says let them reign, He's saying. Let them reflect me into this world, into my world. So in a very real way, why did God make us and place us in his world? It's so that we can reflect his image and so that we can reflect his rule into every area of our lives. That's still true today. So in every sphere of the world that you're in, in what way are you reflecting A, God's image, and B, God's rule, his order, his loving, wise order. Does that make sense? And it's, maybe that's a better way to think of it than just to say, well, you and I were made to worship. Well, that's true, I suppose. But you've got to sort of enlarge then what you mean by worship because there's loads of people that then think, well, then you and I were made to worship. Well, then let's just hang out and sing or, or pray in a prayer room. or you know, Let's just do that because that's what we were made to do and nothing about the world matters. But is that the original mandate to Adam and Eve. Just hang out with me in a perfect garden where we can pray and commune and sing and don't worry about it. No. The very beginnings of it is, yeah, let's walk together, but out of this intimacy comes work. Out of this intimacy comes function and identity and and, and a purpose. So it's not wrong to say, well, what is my purpose? And Father, how do I walk with you in reflecting your image and reflecting your rule? Okay, Total tangent there, sorry. <laughs> but the, we, we see the fall then as the breaking apart of all of that. Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve saying, you know what God, we don't really want to reflect your rule, we want to rule. We don't want to be mirrors of your image and of your rule into the world, into your creation so that the world can see what, the, you know. no we, we don't want that. We would rather be the ones ruling and so let's go. And at the root of sin is this, is this sort of independence from God, is this attempt to, um, to uh, rebel, to, to rise up against the Creator. But think of the fall in this way. And I said this last week, but I'll say it again. Think of the fall as, as um, fragmentation, as separation, as breaking apart. God makes the world, He calls it good, but by the time this story is being told, everyone who's listening to the storyteller knows Yeah, it's not all good in the world. We're seeing murder, we're seeing violence, we're seeing hunger, we're seeing all kinds of oppression. Don't tell me, you can't just say, in the beginning God made all this stuff and he called it good, the end. We know that's not it. And so the storyteller explains how there is all this stuff in the world, and the way he explains it is, it's this rebellion that has resulted in fragmentation. Genesis 3 is the story of Adam and Eve being separated from God, being, uh, th- that relationship being fragmented because of you know, symbolized by them being kicked out of this garden. Genesis four is the story of who? Cain and Abel. It's two brothers, and one brother murders the other brother. Oh my goodness, we've, haven't we just come out of like a, a fragmented vertical relationship? Is there already a fragmented horizontal relationship, you bet? And then you keep going in the story, and you read Genesis nine, and it's, just, it's stories of 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 of, of um, wickedness to the point where God's going to say, "Well, let's flood this thing." Again, what we notice is not that there that there was a God who flo- that there was a flood. We know from other stories that there was a flood. The difference in the Genesis story of the flood is that God is reluctant. He doesn't want to do this. He's not a God who's capricious and who loves to just torment and and play with creation. He's saying, oh, I don't want to wipe this. All right, let's do this. And then you get to Genesis 11 and it's a different kind of fragmentation. First it's it's people coming together and saying, let's build this tower. Again, it's a rise against God. It's a rage, it's the original rage against the machine. You know, it's only the machine is God. It's the original revolt and they rise up and we can do this. We can build. There's nothing that can stop us. And God says not. You know what? Here, different languages. And you see this fragmentation of societies. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us uh, cover a lot of ground in terms of years. And you have to, to me, you have to notice that the storyteller is not giving us a detailed play-by-play. He's giving us broad strokes. And the broad strokes to see is, Act 1, a good God made a good world. He called it good. Act 2, humans, His image-bearing rulers, rebelled. And because of that, there's, there's fragmentation vertically. There's fragmentation horizontally, and there's fragmentation socially, culturally, nationally now. And you see it that way, you see that the storyteller is almost setting something up, because once you get to Genesis 12, everything slows down. Everything slows down when you get to Genesis 12, the story stops. It's not so quick, we're not just flying through generations, we get to this place where, what happens in Genesis 12? Anybody? Anybody? Father Abraham. Okay, Genesis 12 is Abraham. Now what, what's the deal with Abraham? I mean, if, to, to you and I, we, we can kind of read this as like, okay, remember, we don't want to view the Old Testament as some stories that are happening on the side stage before the main event, aka Jesus, shows up and then we all pay attention and then we, we look that way. But I think as Protestants, this is how we think. We think that the Old Testament is largely side-stage activity, and then Jesus is center-stage, and oh, there's the main event, you know. It's true that Jesus is at the center, but it's all the same story. When Abraham comes, follow me in this, when God calls Abraham, this is what he's saying. He says, look, I'm choosing your family, and through your family, all the families of the earth will be what? Blessed. This, in a way, is God saying, look, everything has broken apart here because of sin, because of rebellion. It's my plan to bring it all back together. And how does God launch that project or launch that plan? He starts with one family. One man. And He says, look, We're going to start here. I'm choosing you. You obey me. You leave your father's house. You be a wanderer. I'm going to lead you to a land. I'm going to choose a people. But let me ask you a question. From the beginning, was the point of choosing Abraham just for Abraham's sake? No. For whose sake was Abraham chosen? For all the families of the earth. All peoples. All peoples. All peoples. This Act Three is the longest Act in, in terms of the Bibles, uh, the years that the Bible spends in a story, because it's really the story of Israel, and that's the reason why the Old Testament takes so much time with it. Uh, very quickly here, let's let's do a little game. Let's play a little uh, uh, a game with this. Uh, who just just by thinking about Bible stories, okay? You got Abraham. Uh, who comes next? Who's Abraham's son? Isaac, and we have this famous story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac, okay? And then Isaac, who are his boys? Jacob and Esau, Jacob and, Esau and what's the deal with them? They're, they're, they're twins, and they're struggling with one another, right? And, uh, and, and, and um, uh, Jacob, uh, you know, cheats Esau out of his birthright, and then Jacob has to flee, and he goes to work for his uncle Laban, right? Do you remember this? And then Jacob wants to marry a girl. What's her name? And, and and whose daughter is she? Laban's daughter. Okay, some interesting family connections. Okay, but but after seven years of working for Laban, who does he get instead? Leah. Leah. The plot thickens. And Jacob says, "Okay, I'm not done. I'm not quitting on this." <laughs> How would you feel if you were Leah? You know what? I don't want seven more years, and I'll get Rachel. Now there's this intrigue that happens between Rachel and Leah, and there's competition about who can bear Jacob a son first, and Leah does, and then Rachel says, well, take my handmaiden, and Leah says, take my handmaiden, and then eventually Rachel uh, has a couple of boys. At, at some point, Jacob's living in a home with four different women whom he's fathered children with. This is the Bible, not Jerry Springer. <laughs> and so in this imperfect way, God is working to redeem. What I want you to see is that the story of of Israel is not a glamorous mythology. It's not a story of a perfect people who do everything right. It's a story of a very fallen people. But the lesson here is that God always works from within. God always works from within. He's not a God that stands from the outside and says, I don't know, try this. I don't know, maybe you should try that. And throws money at a problem like we do. Or throws suggestions or advice. This is a God who says, I'm going to work from inside it. And so I'm going to choose a people from inside. An imperfect people, a fallen people, a people who are still very primitive in their ways of thinking. And I'm going to train them. I'm going to give them these instructions uh, through, you know, through Moses. Once I rescue... Well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I'm going to give them instructions about like, where to go to the bathroom and stuff. You know, like if you're having camp here, you shouldn't go potty in the camp. It's hygiene you know kind of one-on-one all right so jacob and then he has all he has these sons and and his, the son that he loves the most is who joseph why it's rachel's boy it's the it's the first son rachel's given him the, the woman that he loves and so then you've got the whole uh, you know uh, um, um jealousy among the brothers thing and what do the brothers finally do to joseph they sell him off, they pretend he's dead, and they say, oh, let's not leave him in the pit. Let's uh, sell him off. That's better. And they sell him off, and Joseph gets carried off to where? Egypt. And then there's a, he has these, he interprets these dreams and all this stuff for Pharaoh, right? He says, there's going to be seven years of what? Plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So he says, store up. So all of a sudden, there's a, the famine happens, and guess who's got all the stuff saved up? Egypt, right? So who comes running to Egypt for help? All Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons. This is a repeated theme for Israel. They always run to Egypt for help. You'll see this over and over again, all the way right to before exile. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole interesting theme to explore. Mary and Joseph. Anyway, um, so so they they come to Joseph for help, and they and and and. Uh, Joseph tricks him and all this stuff, goes through this testing thing to make sure that these brothers have changed. And then finally he says, come on, it's me. Remember this? They have this big reconciliation. They move there. And then what happens? They just start living there in Egypt, in a land, a part of Egypt's empire called Goshen. And, and, they're, and they're multiplying. And then Genesis, the Genesis story has this hinge in it. It says, now there arose another pharaoh in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. It was like another guy came to power and says, what's with all the Hebrews here, man? Who who brought these kids? Why are they living off of us again? Well, if they're going to live here, let's make them work. And so they turn them into slaves and all this stuff. And then God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And you know the story, you know, Moses' mom gives him up for adoption because there's this edict about Hebrew children being killed and Moses ends up being raised by a Pharaoh's daughter, it's one of the most famous adoption stories in the Bible. And, and, then, and then Moses, you know, he becomes his deliverer, leads them out of Egypt. We know these stories. Gets the Ten Commandments. They're in the desert. You know, the, the people start grumbling. They die. Moses hits a rock instead of speaking to it. He can't go in the promised land now. A whole generation dies in the desert. Next generation, the leader is named. Joshua, he's got faith. He he takes the people in. They go in the land. They settle down. They're living pretty good. You've got all the judges that happen, you know, Samson and others that are trying to fight off the oppressing nations. And then you finally get a king and his name is Saul. But he's the king that the people really wanted and that God sort of gives in to it and says, okay, yeah, sure, have it. Uh, but But then Saul really disobeys and doesn't do what God says. And so God raises up a true king and his name is David. And then talk about the, the figures that we know a lot about their life. We know tons about the story of David. And we're told all about, you know, stuff that he did as a young man and stuff that he does as a king and stuff that he does later as a king and his mistakes. We know about Bathsheba. We know about, David has a son who then takes the throne. His name is Solomon. Solomon though is not such a good boy. He marries a lot of different women and he's got loads of different concubines. And what is the, ultimately the problem with his adultery is that it also leads to idolatry. The problem is, yes, it's a a wrong thing to have all these wives, but beyond that, he's got women from all these other uh, cultures that eventually lead his heart astray towards idolatry. And God essentially says, look, Solomon, out of respect to your dad, I'm not going to take the kingdom from you, because I made a promise to your dad, but when your son comes, look out. And Rehoboam takes the throne and he makes a series of bad decisions, talks to the wrong counselors, that's a whole nother sermon about who to talk to, about life decisions. Rehoboam decides to listen to his young counselors and not the old counselors. And, and Jeroboam, this military exile guy, comes back from hiding and, and they split the kingdom. And Jeroboam takes ten tribes to the north. They're, they keep the name Israel. Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam takes two tribes to the south. They take the name of Judah. Very good, guys. You're, you're tracking First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles are tellings of that story of the good kings and bad kings of Israel and Judah. Why the different accounts? Uh, they're just written at different times. So First and Second Kings likely was the story that was the recap story while they're in exile, or maybe a little before. First and Second Chronicles is the recap of that story after they come back from exile. It's people who've forgotten and they're trying to recap it. Um, all right, what happens to the northern part? Anybody know? They get taken by the Assyrians in 722. Assyrians are real mean people. They take their prisoners and they don't take them as prisoners. They scatter them. Now, why would they, why would you scatter people that you're conquering? So they can't regroup. So they're forced to intermarry. So they basically disappear. They're no longer a people. Israel gets the harshest treatment, probably because of their deeper history of idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. Judah, in 587 B.C., or so there's three different campaigns, they get taken by whom? Babylon. Babylon. The Babylonians take them. But eventually, by 539 B.C., the Babylonians get overrun by whom? The Persians. It's like Trading Spaces Empire Edition, you know? Everybody gets a, gets a chance to rule the world, you know? Persians are a little bit nicer. They try to sort of curry favor with their captives by being nice to them. And so the Persian kings let the Jews go back to Jerusalem and return. Eventually, there's a couple of prominent young dudes that return. One's named Ezra. The other is named Nehemiah. One rebuilds the wall. The other rebuilds the temple. They're both involved in reviving Jewish life in Jerusalem. That's roughly the arc of Act 3. It's a long story. You kind of know where, okay, this is where the prophets came in. The prophet books overlap with the stories of 1 and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, most of them. Some of them are later, are post-exile, like Haggai. Uh, he talks a lot about the rebuilding of the temple, so that's after they've already returned. You kind of have to imagine a little bit what's going on. I probably spent too much time on that, but here we go. Acts 4 is Jesus. Now, Jesus shows up not out of the blue there's a reason now, when Matthew's Gospel opens, when Matthew's story of Jesus opens, whose genealogy does Matthew trace Jesus to? David Nope. Abraham. Abraham. Well, why? Why Abraham? Anybody? It's the original promise. God said, I'm going to use Abraham's family to rescue all the families of the world. But well, what happens when the instrument that you're supposed to use is itself unfaithful? What if there's there's a oh there's so a thousand different analogies that are working through my head. <laughs> what if, I don't know, just, let's pick one, all right? What if there's this disease that's that's sweeping through the country and You're the doc that has the antidote. You've developed the antidote for it. You say, I'm going to use, I promise, I'm going to use my FedEx truck, this FedEx truck, to deliver this antidote all across the country. FedEx truck gets stopped somewhere in Kansas, breaks down, and says, let's just use the antidote ourselves. Do you say, oh, come on, let's call UPS. Is Jesus plan B? Is Jesus... You know, sort of, man, bummer, I really wanted that Abraham's family and Israel thing to work out, but that didn't work out. Oh, well, okay, Jesus, you ready? Let's go. Is that what this is? Is it God sort of seeing if the kids can figure it out first, and then he says, all right, do I have to? Is that what this is? Or was it, is it true that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain? Is it true that when God told Abraham, I'm going to use your family, He knew that one who was the seed of Abraham, one who came from Abraham's family, would be the Messiah. Fully God and fully man. Jesus comes and Paul says this remarkable argument in Ephesians 2 and 3, but mostly Ephesians 2. He says, look, because Jesus is the Messiah, then in Him... All nations are blessed, and so Jews and Gentiles are now one people. Do you remember that we painted the problem of sin as a problem of fragmentation? The problem of the fall is a problem of fragmentation. In Jesus, everything starts to come back together. It begins by saying, I'm making one new humanity, and it's called the church. It's one new people, whoever are, are, is in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, this is one new humanity. Things are coming back together. But then there's this picture in the New Testament of not just races coming together, cultures coming together. What else does Ephesians talk about as coming together? Remember in Ephesians 4, he says, Look, there's a unity of the spirit here, and now there's no more male or female, Greek, slave, free. All the different polarities and dualities that are the result of of a fallen world that's trying to say, You don't belong here, and you must go here, and you must go there, and you don't fit. That in Jesus, those things are being pulled in together. Paul makes the case later on in the same book of Ephesians that even marriage is a picture of this. That husband and wife out of reverence for Christ become one. And I speak of a great mystery, he says, but now it is of Christ and the church itself. All the unity, all, all the oneness pieces. He actually starts Ephesians with this, with this phrase in Ephesians 1.10 that one day in the fullness of time, all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together in Christ which says to us that the final act of the story that's yet to come is a, is one of restoration everything is going to be brought back together set right made new and brought back together what's this vision that John has in Revelation 21 you remember this? It says, then I saw, right? What does he see? Uh, this city. And what happens to this city? It's descending down onto Whoa, 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 whoa. Heaven is coming down to earth? Yep. So, so there's going to be this whole world made new again, and then God's new heaven and new earth. What, what does that say to you? It says restoration. It says that this whole thing comes back together again. Another way to look at the whole story of the Bible is as a chiasm. Now what's a chiasm? You know the Greek letter chi is an X. It's when you tell a story with like you say A and then you say B and then instead of saying A and B you say A B B A so that if you drew a letter a line from B to B and A to A it would make an X. They're like, what the heck are you saying, Glenn? Look. <laughs> it's the story of creation. It's the story of covenant. A good God makes a world and calls it good, but then there's this fall and it starts to break apart. What is God's vehicle to, to bring healing and put it all back together again? It's this word covenant. Who does he choose and make a covenant with first? Abraham. And out of Abraham's family comes this man, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And because of Jesus, if anyone now is in Christ, even though you are not from the family of Abraham, if you have faith in Christ, you're part of the new covenant people, right? That's what we talk about with ourselves. A way to think about covenant people is to think about it in terms of like membership, are any of you members at, um, you know, like a health club or something? Anybody? 24-hour fitness or lifetime or whatever. You're members of a club, okay? Now, what if, you know, you, try, you were like a YMCA member and you tried to go to, uh, I don't know, Lifetime Fitness or something, you know? Like, man, I'm a, uh, here's my Y card. They're like, what's, what's your Y card, man? It's just Lifetime, you know? But no, man, I, like I pay money every month. Yeah, but you pay it to the Y. Yeah, but I've got, I'm a member, but you, you're not. You know. This is sort of how it was prior to Jesus. The only membership card there was to being the people of God was to be a Jew. And yeah, there was a way for Gentiles to come in like Ruth, but they had to convert to Judaism. They had to say, okay, look, I'll, I'll take it on. I'll take on all the laws and all the customs. I will be your people, be my people, your God. That's yeah, what Ruth says. There is a way, but you've got to trade ID badges. Jesus comes and He says, look, I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm the culmination of this. Everything in the story has been racing up toward me. I'm the pinnacle of it. I'm the climactic moment of this drama. It's me. They all, the Scriptures, speak of me, Jesus says. And then Paul, looking backwards on it, says, look, actually, faith has always been the real ID badge and so Paul makes this argument in Romans 4 and in Galatians he says look how did Abraham get, get in as the people how, how, why, how come, what was Abraham's sort of ID badge to be God's chosen guy what was it? faith, Paul says and so Paul kind of makes this parallel and says look God always intended that, that faith would be the, the real ID badge and so now if anyone has faith in Jesus the Messiah you're part of the new people." But the story culminates ultimately with new creation. Revelation 21, Then I saw it, new heavens, new earth, new creation. And if you were to draw a line from one to the other, you would draw it like this. And it would basically be the story of the Bible as a chiasm. As a story of creation, covenant. Jesus, new covenant, new creation. Does that make sense? You see this? You see how, in a very real way, Jesus' arrival is a huge deal. It's massive. He didn't come as a Malaysian. He didn't come as a Caucasian. He came from the family of Abraham because God made a promise that He was going to use this. When you look at the story of Scripture this way, it says two very large things to me. Number one, God does not scrap his projects. God does not scrap his projects. He's not the kind of God that creates a world and then says, whoops, guess that didn't work. Pluto? Let's make you a little bigger first, you know. Think about this, what else is remarkable, the other thing that's remarkable to me about the story of the flood is not that God flooded the world, we, yeah, there's other accounts that have a God flooding the world, it's that he was reluctant, yes, but the other thing is that he goes to great lengths to preserve original creation, Noah and his family, and then two of each animal, why? Why? I mean, if he's God, couldn't he just say, let's flood it all and then I'll just make a new animal. You guys didn't like lions. Uh, how about I'll, I'll make a liger this time. You know, whatever. I'll make something new. God does not scrap his projects. I think that's good news for you and I. That what God starts and sets in motion, he sees through to completion. That a creation even a creation infected by evil can be renewed and restored into new creation because God does not scrap His projects. He doesn't. The second thing it says to me is that God does not abandon His promises. He could have said, well, Abraham, hey, you were unfaithful, dude. All of Israel was unfaithful. Covenant unfaithfulness I made a covenant with Israel. I made a covenant with you and you're unfaithful, so fine. No, he says, look, I said I was going to use your family to rescue the whole world. I'm going to do it through one from your people who will also be fully God and fully man. It's Jesus. This is a huge mystery. But it's the reason you can't de-Judaize the story of Jesus. You can't tell the story of Jesus like, well, God just sent His Son, and He came, and He died for our sins, and yeah, woo! You have to see it as God sending His Son as a Jew so that it shows God not abandoning His promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to use your family to bless all families of the earth. But how? If Abraham's family themselves were unfaithful and disobedient, The Messiah. Some of you, you think of Messiah like what is this, Like, like another name for Jesus? Sure. But more. The term has this David implications in it, son of David. And you think about what was David's most famous battle? This is before he became king. David and Goliath. Now in that battle, Are the whole nations fighting each other? Are the Philistines and the Israelites fighting each other all at the same time? There's one person who becomes a representative on behalf of the whole nation and fights against their enemies on behalf of the people, right? It's David. To say that Jesus is... Because you say, well, how can one guy do this? How could Jesus be... If Jesus is the Messiah, then he could representatively say, all right... On behalf of you, Israel, on behalf of you, despite your unfaithfulness, I come. I'll be faithful on your behalf. And because I've been faithful on your behalf, I'll unclog the pipelines. I'll open it up to the world. Does that make sense? On behalf of you, representatively. That's why it's important to see Jesus as the culmination. So God does not scrap his projects. God does not abandon his promises. I suppose you could add a final one here that God... Cannot be stopped. I kind of like that—that that he will not be stopped. If you think of an artist working on an easel and painting and drawing this beautiful portrait, and then a vandal runs in, starts you know pouring black paint on it and just scarring up this painting. Any artist that you and I know would say, "Well, that's fine. I'll just rip off this page, and I, I can do it." again, right? But what kind of artist would it be to, say, to, to see what the vandal has done and then say, you done? You finished? Because look what I'm going to do now. And turns it into something beautiful. The God who redeems is more powerful than the God who simply prevents. Now this is a whole like separate story on oh, what about evil? We can't get into all of that. Today, But a God who knows he cannot be stopped is a God who knows that his last word is so strong, is so redemptive, is so restoring, is so saving, is so healing, is so powerful that the worst pain and the worst sorrow and the deepest stain and the worst sin and the most difficult unfaithfulness, that all of it, none of it is enough to stop him that's the story of scripture it's a story of god making this world and acting within it to save it to redeem it to rescue it to put it all back together all right yes no you want to talk about it in your tables from it for like three minutes Got a little bit of time joe Let's do this. Let's go back to this slide. At at your table, find out or, or tell each other which act you would like to know more about. Maybe you could start by saying, you know, I know a lot about this part of the story. I know a lot about this part. But I really don't know much about this part. And I'd like to know a little bit more about it. All right. Ready? Go. All right. Real quick, how many of you said, I'd love to, I, I kind of want to learn more about Act 1, you know, how many of you said, oh, that's kind of what, you know, all right, how many of you, Act 2, like, man, just want to explore, all right, I'm going to guess here that this is going to be the biggest one, Act 3, yeah, all right, it's great, me too, Act 4, certainly know that, that's good, Act 5, Yep. Act 6, yeah, right, okay, um, Real quick here in our final few minutes, I just want to leave you with a couple of uh, practical things. Once again, I've got to turn the page on Keynote. Let's go, baby. Come on. Oh, yeah, the lines. There we go. Yes. It doesn't flip pages very quickly. Okay. Um, when you're sitting down and read the Bible, and you, you, the, most of this can be done... With really just a good study Bible, you don't have to... A lot of this, um, it's just if we're a bit more disciplined about this. Think through a text. Um, if you're going, again, if you're sitting down to read it as a, as a study thing, sometimes you can just read it uh, with a method, call, a method called Lectio Divina where you're just reading it to let it speak to you. That's great too. But if you're looking to study it, you start with observation. And these are a couple of the questions you want to ask. Okay, so what's going on? Uh, what's the occasion or the historical setting? Um, what kind of genre of, of literature is this? Uh, who are the characters in this story? Uh, so, for example, you know, you're reading Proverbs. Like, well, These are wisdom sayings. You, you, you shouldn't read Proverbs the same way you read the Ten Commandments. They're not that. They're not commandments. Um, but I think a lot of Christians treat Proverbs like commandments. Uh, and so it's like, well, thou shalt not kill, and also do not rebuke a fool in his folly, you know? Like, what? When, what do you mean by that? that How's that? It's not a commandment, okay? They're not all commandments. And so understanding the kind of genre of literature on this, I think Joe can teach a, a lot more about this. This is kind of a tease on this. That Gordon Fee book on how to read the Bible for all it's worth, we, we'll go into a lot of this. But let's say you're reading the story of Ruth. Um, read it through and then think through the different characters. What's it like? Well, what would it have been like to be Ruth in this story? And you read it once through with Ruth in mind. Maybe you read it a second time through and you read it with Boaz in mind. Man, what's it like to be Boaz? And you read it again, you read it with Naomi in mind. What's it like to be Naomi in the story? And you read it from these different perspectives. Well, you read the book of Esther, I'm teaching on that story tonight at New Life Sunday night at 5 o'clock in the tent. What's it like to be Esther in the story? What's it like to be Mordecai in the story? What's it like to be Haman in the story? And kind of think about who the characters are if you're reading um, a story. What's the cultural meaning or significance? Now, this is the only one of the few questions where you may not know this. Like, I don't know. Like, what's the cultural significance of this or that? Well, that's where a good study Bible can help. That's where, if you really want to go deeper, you can get sometimes good commentaries can help. Um, But but if you don't know, it's okay. Just say, you know, I'm not really sure what that was all about. You know, it says that Boaz and this dude at the gate, like, took off their sandals and threw it at one another. Like, I don't really know what that means. But if you don't know, just stop there. Better to stop there than to say... Well, the Holy Spirit showed me that what that means is, be careful, okay, interpretation. The questions you're trying to uh, ask yourself here is, what does this story mean to them? Uh, not, what does this story mean to me? Uh, all of us have probably been in a Bible study setting where you read a, a text or a story and then someone says, all right, well, what does this mean to you? And for the next hour, you just feel like you'll never get that hour of your life back again, you know, because you're listening to everybody just sort of give their opinion. What we want to know is what did this mean to them? What must it have meant to them in exile to be doing this or to be thinking about this? Why is this story included? Why this one? Why is Esther included in the Hebrew Scriptures even though God's name is not mentioned in it? Um... Why might the, what might the author have been trying to say? You know, we kind of think through that. What does the author or the narrator say next? I think this is one of the simplest uh, things: is when you're reading a chapter, you read before and after your favorite chapters or your favorite verses. Uh, sometimes a great, great thing to do is to say, you know what? Uh, this evening, for my devotions for the weekend, whatever, I'm just going to sit down and read, um, you know, the Gospel of Mark all the way through. Just read it, just quick. You're not going to do, sometimes what we need is, 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 is not so much the drilling down, but the looking wide. Uh, we need the surveying. Okay, what, what's the themes here that kind of pop up to the surface? What are they, what are they saying next? What does this mean to them? And then thirdly here is the word participation. And that's when you can ask, what does this mean for me? But notice the word is for me, not to me. What does this mean to them? What does this mean for me? Uh, who am I in this story? I love that question, you know, like, like how, how does this challenge or confront my... Am I Daniel? I taught last Sunday night on Daniel, living in Babylon. So who am I? How does this challenge my identity as, as, a, as a Christian in America? Uh, how can my heart be reshaped by the Holy Spirit through this? And then, of course, lastly, where's Jesus in the story? Oh, you know, Boaz, he's a redeemer. He That's, man, that's a lot like what... Eventually we see Jesus. Yeah, that's true. And where is Jesus in this? Or where is God at work in this? How is God working from within this? Uh, these are all ways of kind of joining the story. Yeah, that's a great scripture from James that none of us can read. So there we go. Um, all right, well, it's been fun being with you these last couple Sundays. I know today was a little bit like, whoa, you know. But that's what happens when you want to teach through the Bible in 40 minutes. So. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. But, but, but maybe it can be helpful to think through those two frameworks, either as a, a story in six acts or as this chiasm thing, creation, covenant, new covenant, new creation. Any way you tell the story, you're always going to see Jesus at the center of it. And you're always going to see uh, God working from within his world. Um, what I want to leave you with as we pray is, this, is uh, those three things that we talked about at the end of the... Um, uh, the end of the creation covenant, Jesus, new covenant, new creation thing. God does not scrap His projects; He does not abandon His promises, and He cannot be stopped. That's great. That's great news. It's great news that the story of, of Scripture is the story of God acting within His world to save it. That means nothing is wasted. Nothing's thrown away. Nothing is. We're not looking to escape anything. We're not looking to say, Oh, God, thanks. For the." can't wait for the day till I leave this earth. Instead of saying, God, I can't wait for the day that you restore and renew this earth. Martin Luther was asked, If you knew the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do? And he said, Plant a tree. Because then I would see it fl- come to its full flourishing when Christ returned. That's the idea of God not scrapping his projects. That nothing we do here or today In the Lord, Paul says, nothing done in the Lord is done in vain. So let's pray that we would all participate, join the story, so that nothing you and I do today, this week, this month, this year, is in vain. So Spirit of God, help us. Help us to join the story of your scripture. Help us to read your word and let it get inside of us. Help us to read your word and let us get inside of it. And to see Jesus, to see you working from within it, to see you, the Redeemer, the Savior that the story uh, has been pointing to all along. Help us not only to be the people who are being redeemed, but to be the people through whom you work to rescue and redeem. May we recover the calling of Adam and Eve to reflect your image, to reflect your rule, to make it so that everything that we do is done in you and therefore never in vain, never wasted never lost in Jesus name amen
0: amen let's thank Glenn for speaking today That's good thanks Glenn well hey everybody you're dismissed we'll see you next week I'll be continuing this idea of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus and the coming Messiah so that'll be our theme so we'll see you next week peace
1: nice. sorry for being going over all-